calamity defined is a disastrous event or events marked by great loss, lasting distress, and suffering. These are the kind of events that you have in your life that shake you to your core. Those kind of moments where before the moment you were a certain kind of person and then after that thing happened, you were maybe a different person afterwards. Calamity makes us think of things like tornadoes and pandemics and earthquakes. It makes me think about the last 48 hours of youth camp this year. (laughs) You see, at one point there was a bear, and that wasn't even the craziest thing that happened on that particular day. Uh, We we had some calamity, kind of crisis within crisis, so I hope this doesn't trigger anybody who was there. But we had just loaded our third student into an ambulance to head to the hospital because of extreme dehydration and altitude. The counselors were kind of having that moment of like, okay, well, what's this? What's going on? Um, Or what are we missing? Is this some kind of a bug? Is this going to get worse? And we're trying to gather our thoughts and figure out, you know, this is calamity. This is not what we have in mind for camp. And then all of our phones ding with a new text message that says, there's a bear heading toward the auditorium. The obvious question is, how did they know? Did the bear tell them where it doesn't matter? We don't have time for such questions. It's like a crisis within a crisis, calamity. So Austin and I head outside, and sure enough, there, if you leave the worship center, there's, there's like one skinny sort of path that connects the, the cafeteria to the worship center, and then there's a big lake over here that, that, is, that includes most of that area. And so we look up, and there's a group of people on that path running towards us going, bear, bear. So we knew that that's where the bear was. To make things worse, there was also a field of over 400 students that were completely unaware of the looming threat, like right here. Austin and I quickly realized that we had to clear this field, so like a couple of total psychopaths, we start yelling, bear, get inside, save yourselves, go. And as we tried to direct these students to exit the field, I look up and there was a young man, we'll just call him a middle schooler, and he has his phone up and he's filming me. And I go, bro, there's a bear. And he goes, yes, sir, it's actually right there. And I turned around and lo and behold, I was about 20 feet away from a black bear. I was shook. It was over 1,000 pounds, at least 10 feet tall. And in that moment, for some reason, you know, you're prepared for certain moments and you don't realize you're prepared for them until you're in the moment, right? And so in that moment, I remembered, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun whoever I'm with. (laughs) But as I look at the person I'm with, it's Austin, a collegiate cross-country runner. And I think, sure, Lord, in the moment I'm finally face-to-face with a bear, you pair me up with a competitive runner who is still young and skinny, of which I am neither. (laughs) Thankfully, the bear decided to run from us, so we didn't have to see who was faster. But it ran from us and toward the group of kids that were still there. So we're trying to clear this field. And as we continue to do so, we realize that most of the 400-plus students were far more interested in ignoring our warnings, and they were trying to take selfies with the bear. That's stupid, kids. That's not a, a good way to die, potentially. Don't do that. 
Um, the taking selfies with the bear. Um, perhaps we should have been more specific in our warnings. Like, but black bears are five times stronger than humans. Their bite force is 800 PSI, easily crushing your middle school skull. Get inside. But in the absence of such details, in the absence of knowledge, there was this irreverent absence of fear. It was just kind of like they didn't want to be bothered with this thing that, that we were yelling about. There was an irreverent absence of fear. There was a flippancy toward the bear, and there was even a flippancy toward us who were trying to warn them about the doom and potential gloom of the bear. It even continued into the evening. I was walking with a group of people back to the cabin, or one of the cabins, and uh, there was this kid that saw me, and he goes, ooh, bear. <laughs> and I punched him right in the face. So in this last set of verses of Hebrews 12, the writer of this letter is dealing with a similar dynamic. There are no bears mentioned in the book of Hebrews, but what he's dealing with is this tendency toward flippancy when it comes to God. They're not responding to God's way with the reverence and the fear that they should be responding to the Lord. In some ways, the Hebrew church is toying with an irreverent absence of fear because they just want to return to their former life. You may have met people who came to Christ, but they said, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I think I'm just going to kind of keep doing what I'm doing, talking how I'm talking, living how I'm living, because it's familiar. It doesn't freak me out as much as the idea of following Jesus wholeheartedly. And that was the tendency of many of the members in the Hebrew church. Rather than leaning into Jesus as their mediator and leaning into Jesus as their salvation they want to be okay with Jesus and say they accept Jesus, but then they just want to live what's familiar. And what was familiar to them is, is understandably big because it was generation after generation after generation that tried to live in adherence to the law, and that was part of their heritage. Last week, Pastor Kai walked us through the previous verses that lead up to these, which are essentially what we do in light of what God has done. There's this pattern throughout the book of Hebrews where there's these things called indicatives and these things called imperatives. And the indicative is this is what God has done. And the imperative is so it's imperative that you live like this or that you do this or that you don't do this. And the beautiful encouragement for us in Scripture is that we're never called to do something that has not first been preceded by the actions of God that enable us to do what he calls us to. We're never on our own. And that's really good news. So last week it was because of what God has done for us in Christ because we have a better high priest, because we have a better mediator, because we have a better sacrifice, then and only then, an understanding of that, can we begin to consider how we live. And Pastor Kai walked us through that in light of those things, you lift yourself up, you can continue to try, you can put one foot in front of the other even when you feel like you've got nothing left to give. You can make straight your paths, strive for peace, strive for holiness, and then particularly at the end of that section, there's this warning to not be like Esau. So what does Esau have to do with this whole thing? It's going to be a very important piece of the puzzle. Esau was the older brother of Jacob. You've heard of Jacob and Esau. And he was a guy of the field. And so he's out in the field one day working, probably a hunter-gatherer, kind of a man's man. Uh, his brother Jacob was in the kitchen. And when he came in, he said, I'm dying of hunger. Give me something to eat. And Jacob's like, give me your birthright and you can have some red stew. And Esau goes, okay. He just said, that's a great deal. I'll trade my birthright. And it just, it doesn't say like, 
Like my wife makes an amazing tortellini soup, and I would sacrifice some things of great value for that soup. This just says red stew. Nothing in particularly amazing there. Just red stew. As the firstborn, Esau had a birthright that would come with significant power and sway, the kind of power that could affect many future generations and set the course for his family. As, a, as that birthright, he could set a trajectory for the family. But in a moment of simply wanting what he wanted when he wanted it, Esau gave way to the solicitations of the flesh without regard to the consequences that would come from trading his birthright for something else. He was hasty. He was fleshly. He was worldly. Rather than being transformed by the renewal of his mind, he was one who was being conformed to the world and poured into its mold. He traded something of great value for red stew. And it says this in verses 15 through 17. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought that blessing with tears. So what Esau wanted was the blessing without the repentance. And it's interesting that it says that no one would be sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. There's no sexual immorality mentioned about Esau in the text, but what we're seeing here is that the fleshly, I want what I want kind of thinking that Esau had and was marked by is the same kind of thinking that leads to sexual immorality where you also trade something of great value for something that's of lesser value. So there's this warning not to be like Esau, and I think part of our work this morning is to answer the question, how does the writer of Hebrews encourage the Hebrew church to remember their birthright, to remember who they are in Jesus, to remember what their inheritance is and what kingdom they're a part of? How is he using Esau to help them do that and ultimately to not be like Esau? The first point we see is that the writer of this letter to the Hebrew church, where they're tempted to go back to the law, he says, you have not come through Christ to Sinai. You have not come through Christ to Sinai. It says this in verses 18 through 21. He's saying, where have you come with Christ? When you came to Christ, you laid hold of him by faith. You accepted the free gift. Where does that bring you? He says, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the, was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. The Hebrew church needs to understand in order to move forward faithfully that Jesus is not leading them back to the law. They don't lay hold of Jesus through faith and then Jesus doesn't say, all right, give me your hand, we're going back to Sinai. We're gonna go back to Sinai and we're gonna try harder this time. That's not what Jesus does. And they need this to be clear. Why? Sinai is darkness and gloom and terror. Sinai is marked by unbearable horror, unendurable order, and trembling with fear. Why? Because this is the moment where we hear God's requirements and we know we don't measure up. 
This is the beginning of what would be a 1,600-year system designed by God to make it clear that all have sinned and fall short of the righteous requirement that he has, which is perfection, perfect righteousness. A perfectly holy God can't require anything less. So it's like they're looking, they're hearing what God is saying is the requirement through the law, and it's almost like I'm out. I, I know I, I've already done some of those things today. Or they look around at their brothers and sisters and go, I don't know a single person who can do that. It's like if you had a practice where the coach is like, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to run 10 miles, and we're going to do 1,000 push-ups, we're going to do 1,000 sit-ups, and we're going to hit the weight room. And you're, you're like, I'm out. Just because you know from the get-go, I can't do that. We did Whole30 earlier this year in January. It's worn off, so don't ask any questions. But they, we did Whole30, and I was telling my little brother about it, um, and he was like, okay, tell me about it. And I said, well, the, the main thing is you just can't have bread and sweets. And he goes, I'm out. While not that flippant, that is kind of what was going on at Sinai. That's why there was so much terror and so much gloom. They're hearing the requirement that God has, and they know they can't do that. They know they've already failed before he even said the words out loud. I want to make sure we see that because it's not that he was just a big, scary God with a booming voice. It says specifically, they could not endure the order that was given. They begged that no further messages be spoken to them. They, they could not stand the voice whose words said what they said. So what he said shook them. They were shaken in that moment, and the result was doom and terror and gloom. I want to make sure as we go through the book of Hebrews, you know, we're, we're working our way towards the end. It, it can sound like maybe the law was a bad idea or it just didn't work. And I want to make sure to clarify that that is not the case. The law has a very specific purpose, and it's important for us to make sure we understand that as we hear this warning not to go back to the law, not to think Jesus is taking you back to Sinai. And the book of Romans helps us to understand the purpose of the law with a little bit more clarity. First, the law speaks to Israel in a way that deals with all humankind. It says specifically in Romans 3, 19 through 20, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law speaks to everybody in the way that it speaks to Israel. It's, it's our God is a God who chose to move among a particular people in a particular way for a particular amount of time so that in the way that he dealt with them, the whole world would be held accountable. Every mouth would be stopped. Your mouth, my mouth, none of us can say we are righteous. So he dealt with them through the law in a way that dealt with everybody before them and everyone who would come after them until Jesus returns. No human being escapes the reality of the law. So if you're sitting here this morning and you've ever wronged someone, you've ever lied, you've ever taken something that didn't belong to you, or you've just wanted something that didn't belong to you because someone else had it, that's, your, that, that's the camp you're in. It speaks to us. It closes all of our mouths. It humbles us. The law came also to clarify how we have wronged a holy God. It shows our unholiness. It gives words to what we are doing that we should not be doing. Romans 5, 20 through 21 says, now the law came to increase the trespass. So that's like, you may not have known what it was to covet, but when it says do not covet and you covet, now every single time you do that, you're breaking the law. You're, you're not moving according to God's righteous standard. It says the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, 
grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law brings a certain condemnation, but it brings a clarity into who we are as an unholy people in regards to a very holy God who is perfect in every way. It lets us know where we stand and what our God who spoke us into existence expects. So the law was not a bad idea. The law was not something that didn't work. The law did exactly what it was supposed to do. And interestingly, Romans also says, boasting in the law dishonors God. When he's, when he's encouraging the Hebrew church and he's saying, listen, you, you can't say I'm following Jesus, but I'm going to keep looking to adhere to the law. He's not saying, guys, this is not a good idea. He's saying it dishonors God to think that you can just move in a way where I'm just going to try to be better. I'm going to try to do good. I'm going to try to be a good guy or a good girl. Um, there's a hopelessness about that because boasting in the law dishonors God. And in wanting to return to the law, they were sort of boasting in it, saying this is the best way. And Romans 2.23 says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. You can't have a double standard. You can't say this is the best way of life and then break that law because it dishonors God because his requirement is perfection. So you have not come through Christ to Sinai Sinai is what God's presence looks like without a mediator. Sinai is what God's presence looks like without Jesus. Jesus is not leading you back to Sinai to try to tell you to work harder. And What we have to see is the same thing that they had to see is the law has served its purpose so you must no longer continue to try to serve the law. The law has served its purpose now, you don't continue to serve the law because in Jesus, there's something better than that. So we have not come through Christ to Sinai. So where have we come? As he's looking at the Hebrews, he's like, you did not come to Sinai. You did not come to what may be touched. But here's what you have come to. Through Christ, you have come to an eternal and unshakable heavenly Zion. Now, why didn't everybody cheer, Right? There's no greater news than that. Through Christ, you have come to a heavenly, eternal, unshakable, eternal Zion and Jerusalem that cannot be shaken and that will endure forever. That's really good news, but when we hear it, it doesn't have the punch that you might expect, right? So we got to dig into it a little bit. we got to do work. Look at verses 22 through 24. It says this. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel spoke a word of revenge. Christ speaks a better word. A new heavenly Zion and Jerusalem have been anticipated by God's people for generations. I could spend the rest of the morning reading Old Testament prophecies anticipating a new heavenly Jerusalem and Zion. Revelation 21 makes it really clear for us. And in a sense, as we consider this, we're considering what the writer of the Hebrew letter wanted them to fix their eyes on. He's saying, get your eyes from Sinai to Zion. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We'll get to that in a minute. And the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne. Remember the last loud voice? It was terrifying. It was gloom. It was darkness. But here we see, we hear a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. With man. Do you care if you dwell with God eternally? You should. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. As I worked through this section of the sermon, I was trying to find words to paint an illustration and draw a picture of how absolutely remarkable and wonderful the heavenly Zion is. And everything I came up with just fell way short. It just just sounded dumb, to be honest with you. The goal of the sermon is to have the main points be what the main points are in the scripture. So what I want to do is just look at these main points and make sure we don't miss what is being told to us about the heavenly Zion that Jesus is taking us to. Number one, God will be there and you are invited. You don't graduate from that. That's not the kind of thing that you're like, that was cool when I first heard it, but over time it loses its sparkle. No, no, no. God will be there and you are invited. And not only are you invited, but you will not tremble with fear. You will see him as a good heavenly father. You, you have an access to him that's different that they didn't have in Sinai. And you will be with God and you will not be running. You will not be plugging your ears so that you don't hear his words anymore. You'll want to worship him. You will want to savor his presence. So the first reality of this heavenly Zion, God will be there and you're invited. That's amazing. Number two, angels, created angelic beings, will gather for huge feasts where there are so many angels in number that they are not able to be counted. It is an innumerable feastal gathering of angels, and you're invited. That fire you up at all? I mean, I've never been to one of those before, Right? I don't even know what I'm saying. I don't even know what this is like. The firstborn of faith, our heavenly ancestors, will assemble there. It will be like a heavenly family reunion of a bunch of people that you haven't met, but it won't be weird. It'll be cool because all these people will have played a significant role in your heritage, and you're invited. The spirits of the righteous made perfect, Our eternal inheritance will gather there and you will be able to gather not only with the spirits but also the angels and God and this heavenly genealogy that we have. That's what you're being brought to. This is unshakable. This is eternal. To be clear, Sinai is what it looks like to be in the presence of God without a mediator. The unshakable heavenly Zion in Jerusalem is what God's presence looks like with Jesus as our mediator. And what I mean by that is this, Jesus' blood cries out a better blood than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and atonement. And where Jesus' blood cries out for that, it is granted. So you will be able to do this because you will have forgiveness and you will be made clean. 
white as snow. The righteousness of Christ counted as yours because of the spilled blood of Jesus. It is a better blood in so many ways and better than the blood of Abel because he doesn't seek revenge for our sinfulness against God. He seeks atonement and restoration. And it is a wonderful love that we receive from him through this. So why is this heavenly Zion so amazing? The sin and sickness and sadness and uncertainty and anxiety and hate and lawlessness and wars that threaten to shake us will ultimately and finally be done with. It sounds great. Jesus tells us to take his yoke upon ourselves. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. That is not what they felt at Sinai. But it is what will be eternally felt in Zion. So we know we haven't been taken to Sinai. We've been taken to this eternal Jerusalem. This new heavens and new earth. And in the middle of that reality... We get this warning, do not refuse the unshakable. There's, he, he shows us the reality of what's unshakable and he says, do not refuse the unshakable. Specifically, verse 25 says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's Jesus. Jesus is currently seated at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us and from there he speaks to us with warnings and offerings. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So apparently there are some who Jesus is speaking from heaven and there are some who are rejecting him and there's this less than to greater than argument saying, if we didn't escape earth on Sinai when God spoke, what makes you think? What makes you think that you're going to escape Jesus who's warning us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Do not refuse the unshakable. So Jesus is warning us from heaven, and some refuse him by holding too tightly to temporary things. This was a bit of what Esau did. Some refuse Jesus, who warns us from heaven, by holding too tightly to temporary things. This results in things like sexual immorality, materialism, a desire for fame, desire for influence. All these things that you know won't last for forever, yet we refuse Jesus now to lay hold of them now. Jesus is warning us from heaven, and some refuse him through idolatry, through serving other gods. I think the most popular version of idolatry today is one where you take the God of the Bible and you make him a little less scary and you make him a little more kind in your view and just call him God. But rest assured, that's an idol. Just because you gave him the name of God doesn't mean that's God. I don't know how many times over the years I've heard people use the phrase, I'm just trying to figure out what my truth is. If there's a bunch of different versions of truth, there's no truth. And this is, a, this is a form of idolatry today that is growing and growing and growing. It kind of goes right in hand with the whole you do you mentality. You do you is not biblical. You don't meddle in the affairs of others, but you do you is like, hey, if you go to hell, I don't really care. And that's severely problematic given the way we're supposed to view, view others who are, who are shunning the Lord. Idolatry. Serving other gods. 
the encouragement to them is you be who you are in Jesus. Don't lose sight of that. That's the encouragement to the Hebrew church. But there are those who are still refusing Jesus through idolatry, serving other gods. What happened on Sinai? On Sinai, Moses goes to the top, and he's been gone a long time. And so they, they freak out a little bit. And by Aaron's account, I believe, yep, uh, by Aaron's account, um, what had happened was uh, they just they took all the gold and they threw it in the fire and then just, just the dangest thing, out popped this little golden calf. That's what, that, that was their story. Sin makes you stupid, right? So out pops this little bitty golden calf, right? Uh, a, a baby. Oftentimes our idols are things that are controllable and not so scary to us. They didn't make a lion. They didn't make a monster that screamed at you. No, no, no. They made a golden calf. And in our idolatry, what we're trying to do often is just seeking some form of stability without God. And it's a fool's errand. There is no stability without God. Jesus is warning us from heaven and some refuse through flippancy, through not giving hardly any thought at all to who God is and what he is doing, like a middle schooler in a field with a bear. I'm not going to be bothered by it. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. How many people do you work with? How many people are in your family? How many people are in your neighborhood that live that life? It's just kind of a flippancy, like, yeah, 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 I'm not opposed to God, but I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to do me. I'm going I'm to just live, and I'm going to try to be good. And there's a flippancy about that. And a lot of times, those who are flippant treat those pursuing the kingdom of God as if they're ridiculous, shallow, soft-headed, foolish, just overly zealous, just sad little sheep. That's why scripture encourages us not to be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us as though something strange were happening to us because they killed Jesus. So you will be wronged, you'll be maligned, you'll be lied about, but stay the course. Remember the heavenly Zion. To double down on this encouragement is a promise in verse 26 that says this. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This comes straight out of Haggai 2, 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 21 it says, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. There's this warning in the middle of this other warning to not refuse Jesus, that there's another shaking coming. There's one final shaking. This is a great cataclysmic earthquake. People talk about the big one. This is going to dwarf the big one. We know Between now and the time Jesus comes back, there's a lot of calamity, and we can already see it in life today. I love it when there's things in Scripture that are just true to life. Love of many will grow cold. The lawlessness will increase. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Has anybody watched the news for the last 20, 25 years? This is all going on right in front of us, and we we know it's true, and we see it in Scripture that this is happening. There will be more of that. There will be more earthquakes. There will be more fire. Whether you believe in global warming or not, the globe will warm to a point of 
being completely changed by fire. We're promised that he won't flood the, the earth again, but he will bring fire and it will be triggered apparently by a cataclysmic earthquake that changes the earth as we know it and the heavens as we know it and what will remain is a new heaven and a new earth. But there's this encouragement here saying, don't refuse Jesus because everything will be shaken. This is where it goes a bit hellfire and brimstone. I was going to title the sermon Hellfire, Brimstone, and Grace, but I thought it sounded too much like a country song. But this is, this is meant to shake you. This is meant to get your attention. God's not boring, in case you're wondering. He's always doing more than we know, and part of what he is promising is that there will be one final shaking, an earthquake that changes the heavens and the earth as we know them, leaving only a new heavens and a new earth. The only thing that will be left is that which is not shakable, the kingdom of God. Do not refuse Jesus. Do not refuse Jesus. Do not refuse his offer. Do not refuse his warnings. Don't welcome irreversible and eternal consequences because you didn't take Jesus at his word. Heed the warnings. For those who do heed the warnings, there's direction given on how we now live. We receive Christ with lives of worship says in 28 through 29, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen. Amen, church. Yeah. Thank God that in Christ we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That when this great shaking happens, what remains is the unshakable kingdom of God. Thank God. Let us offer thanks. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God Acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom is ours now. Notice it doesn't say one day we're going to receive this kingdom. It says this is what you have come to in order. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. You have received this kingdom now. So what that means is that you lay hold of these promises now and you get to sort of taste and savor and enjoy in part now what you will enjoy in fullness eternally. And there is huge blessing in that. God calls you to live lives of acceptable worship. We don't get to worship God just however we want. He says there's things that are acceptable, which means there's things that aren't acceptable. But the acceptable things are marked by reverence and awe, which was the opposite of Esau, who in an irreverence, in an irreverent moment, gave up a birthright, gave up an inheritance for something of far lesser value. Romans 2.4 says, or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do not presume upon God's kindness and patience. Why? Our God is a consuming fire. There's encouragement for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, who are, who are experiencing that kingdom now. There's encouragement that as members of an unshakable kingdom, that consuming fire will not consume you, but it will consume everything and everyone that shakes you. One of the central ways for the Hebrew church to be sustained was to make sure they had a right view of God. They knew what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. And that would help them to know how to live. We are told when we take the supper to examine ourselves, to literally examine our lives, 
every time we take the supper. This morning's a, it might be a little different, it might not, we'll just see. But as we take the supper, as we acknowledge what God has done for us in Christ, I want to urge you to consider some things. And that might, so in a few minutes after I tell you what I want, I want you to consider. I'm going to say take and eat, and I'm going to say take and drink. And if, if you need to consider it more, just grab another one of these on the way out. And sit with the Lord as long as you need to. Confess your sin to someone else. Confess your sin to the Lord. But don't take this in a hasty and irreverent manner. Are you presuming upon God's kindness and patience? Do you have sin in your life that you're going to continue with because you're just presuming that there will be a moment that you'll be able to repent from that and God will just forgive you? Are you presuming upon that? Are you refusing God's warning and his offers from heaven? What temporary things are you holding too tightly? In what ways are you being flippant and not giving enough thought to do, enough thought to who God is and what he's calling you to do? Do you take God seriously? Do you take Jesus at his word? How does the reality of one more final shaking, a cataclysmic earthquake, quicken you to lives of reverence and awe toward our God who is a consuming fire? The good news is that repentance and forgiveness are found in Christ alone because his blood cries out for our atonement. That's what we lean on as we take this. Rather than resisting him, we confess our sins and humbly acknowledge our complete dependence upon Jesus. Take and eat. Take and drink. God, as we continue in worship, I pray that we would do so with a, a right, responsive sense of reverence and awe. I pray that as we sing, we would do so wholeheartedly and soberly. I pray that as we give, that we would do so wholeheartedly and soberly as we confess our sins to one another, as we hold short accounts with each other. Lord, help us to be incredibly encouraged by the reality of an eternal, heavenly, unshakable Zion. We love you, Lord, and we humble ourselves before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.